Welcome to A History of Violence, a podcast which isn't about the history of civil debate. So today I'm going to talk about Antifa, the latest bogeyman that Fox News is using to terrify pensioners. You might know them from the streets of Portland and Charlottesville, or from Trump's ludicrous attempts to have them declared a terrorist organisation. I'll assume that everyone listening knows that Antifa super soldiers aren't going to behead white parents and small business owners in the street. But what is Antifa? What is it doing? And is it violent? The most high-profile incidents involving Antifa recently have turned violent, although I'd argue that this is not a defining feature of the movement. Most of the work which anti-fascists do is rather low-key, kind of boring, and it increasingly involves online monitoring and research rather than street fighting. That said, the kind of mass public disturbances that we see on the news are the most eye-catching aspect. I think, and I'll try and show, that the violence involving anti-fa is not the moral equivalent to far-right violence or terrorism. But the question of what constitutes terrorism or acceptable levels of violence is probably better discussed elsewhere. I'll try and link to some good resources in the show notes. What I want to do on today's episode is to focus on one specific historical event, which I think captures the philosophy and tactics of Antifa. Although the terminology and symbolism of this movement is taken primarily from Germany, this event happened in London. And while countercultural movements of the 1970s and 80s, such as Rock Against Racism, definitely reconfigured anti-fascism and gave it a new breath of life, it's this event which still best captures the logic of counter-protest and direct action which we see nowadays. This is the 1936 Battle of Cable Street in London's East End. So today I'm going to use this event to try and give some insight into the logic and mythology of direct anti-fascist action. I'm going to pronounce the word anti-fascist a lot. <laughs> okay, so first, we have to define what anti-fa is, or more importantly, what it isn't. Firstly, although the name is short for anti-fascist, that's actually a bit narrow. Antifa tends to organise against, obviously, fascist groups, but also racist, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, white supremacist, or other forms of far-right organisation or politics. The focus on fascism in the name partly comes from the historical roots, which I'll get into in a minute. This is why in the 1970s and 80s, American anti-fascism and, to a lesser extent, British anti-fascism essentially rebanded as anti-racism. People got the battle against racism, whereas a lot of people would think that fascism was defeated in the 40s. Another point which anti-fascists would probably make is that fascist groups don't call themselves fascist anymore. After World War II, it was pretty well established that the fascists, and in particular the Nazis, were the bad guys. So very few people would want to be associated with this. That doesn't mean that fascism as an ideology disappeared though. The English Defence League or the British National Party or the Proud Boys or Identity Europa would all deny that they're fascist and would probably deny that they're racist. But that doesn't mean that they aren't. Anyway, that's just a long way of saying that Antifa is also anti-racist, anti-anti-Semitic and all that sort of stuff. Secondly, Antifa isn't a group or an organisation. It's impossible to become a member of Antifa, or at least a paid-up member of Antifa, although people can become involved in decentralised, semi-formal local groups. There's no leader, no organising committee, no member list. Nothing like that. This partly reflects the influence of anarchist ideology within the movement, 
but also reflects the overall strategy. It's a movement which seeks to oppose fascism and racism locally and flexibly, primarily by preventing these groups from organising and successfully mobilising in public. A centralised organisational structure wouldn't be helpful, and it could even open up the group to infiltration or co-option. As a side note, this is why Trump's attempts to ban Antifa or label it a terrorist organisation are so preposterous. Banning Antifa is like banning being liberal or being an environmentalist. It's unworkable. But this is also what makes these kind of attempts quite serious and dangerous. Since it's impossible to ban Antifa as an organisation, any attempts to crack down on it will fall much more broadly on leftist groups, representing a chilling attack on freedom of thought and freedom of activity. So, Antifa is a radical opposition to fascism rather than an actual organisation. However, it goes a bit further than just being an ideology. Pretty much everyone who isn't far-right or a fascist would probably say they are anti-fascist. At the very least, anyone who is left of centre would probably describe themselves as being against fascism. But people involved in Antifa go further than this. They see the need to actively oppose and disrupt fascism. It's not enough to simply say, I'm not a fascist, I don't vote for fascist parties. I vote for not fascist parties. Instead, you have to prevent the fascists from organising themselves break up their meetings, expose them and humiliate them in public, and stop them from building support. Crucially, and most eye-catchingly, you have to stop them from holding their marches and protests successfully. This tends to be when the rough stuff happens. And in a sense, Antifa is not just an ideology, but also a commitment to a certain type of action. It's probably best described as a movement, but it could also just be thought of as a form of political practice. A type of mobilisation. But why the need to go so far? Isn't it enough just to ignore fascists, neo-Nazis and racists? We can just vote for sensible moderate parties and hope that they go away. Well, to understand why that isn't the case, we can go back to the birth of anti-fascism. The term anti-fa comes from a shortened version of um, anti-fascist action, or, and I'll butcher this, Antifascistische Aktion, <laughs> a German organisation which also provides the double flag logo of modern Antifa. This version of anti-fascism was actually a proper organisation, essentially formed as a self-defence wing of the German Communist Party. Every major political party in Germany at this point had some kind of parliament, uh, paramilitary wing, most infamously the Nazi brown shirts. The Communist Party's political force, the Red Front Fighters, had been banned in 1929 by the centre-left Social Democratic government, so Antifa was a new arms-length front organisation which could fulfil a similar role. It's important to mention that the SDP had their own paramilitary organisation and had used such groups to assassinate leftists, most famously Rosa Luxemburg. So this kind of paramilitary violence wasn't simply on the left and the right, it was also from parties at the centre. The 20s and 30s in Germany, and in much of Europe, was characterised by street battles between the armed factions of the left, right and centre. Indeed, the suppression of the left by the combined forces of the centre and the right arguably took precedence over the conflict between the far right and the centre. Both in terms of elite-level alliances and street-level violence, fascists often made common cause with liberals and conservatives to suppress the socialists, communists and anarchists. <laughs> Hitler came to power through an elite anti-communist accommodation with the political centre, which he then used to seize complete control. 
This mirrored Mussolini's path to power, which involved consolidating nationalist liberals and Catholic hardliners before dismantling all opposition and establishing fascist control. This partly reflects a quickly evolving web of alliances at the time, but within the philosophy of anti-fascism, it shows something much more fundamental. And this is, in my opinion, a core tenet underwriting anti-fascist thought. You cannot trust the bourgeois state to protect you against fascism. The political elites often fear the left more than they fear the right, and their mixture of class self-interest and naivety makes them easy prey for fascists. History shows us that taking the fight to the far right cannot be left to the police and the politicians and the established political parties. Leaving it to the state leads to what Alexander Reed Ross called the fascist creep, where the far right ever so slowly builds power by infiltrating existing institutions before removing or co-opting the opposition and launching an all-out attack on its political opponents and ethnic minorities. So, before we go on to look at the events around the Battle of Cable Street, I point out four key things about the logic and tactics of Antifa. It's active, in that it involves actively rather than passively opposing fascism. It involves counter-protest, not just voting for different parties. Nevertheless, it is defensive in the sense that history teaches us a victorious or unopposed fascism will lead to violence against the left and against minorities. The argument goes like this. Just look at the evolution from the brown shirts to the crystal knack to the death camps. Given the far-right free reign to organise in your communities and to march through your streets simply invites violent pogroms and worse. 3. It occurs independently of, and if necessary, against the state because the state cannot be trusted to adequately oppose fascism. 4. It is decentralised and ideologically diverse, rather than hierarchically organised. Despite all the political changes that have happened since the end of World War II, these principles continue to underlie anti-fascism today, and they also constitute the principles which separate capital A anti-fascism as a movement from the more general tendency of being against fascism, which you know most of the population is by default. The best example of these principles in action is the Battle of Cable Street, an event which, despite happening over 80 years ago, remains at the centre of the Antifa mythology. If you want to understand Antifa, you have to understand how the Battle of Cable Street is viewed by those within the movement. So, Britain in the 1930s had a large and vibrant fascist movement centred around Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists, also known as the British Union of Fascists and National Socialists. So to be clear, these were basically the British Nazis. Not only did the BUF have uh, tens of thousands of supporters, they also had a wealthy and charismatic leader. Mosley was a well-connected aristocrat, and he'd become one of the youngest members of Parliament in history. First as a Conservative, then as an Independent, then as a member of the Labour Party. He even served in the Labour government and was seen as a potential future leader. He married into the powerful Mitford family and had the support of the press baron Lord Rovermere, who owned the Daily Mail. This is a paper which remains incredibly popular in the UK today, but at the time it printed the headline, Hooray for the Black Shirts. So, the BUF weren't a group of social or political outsiders. We're talking about a movement led by rich and powerful members of the British elite, with deep connections to government and the civil service. The base of the BUF also consisted of many middle and upper class supporters. It's worth remembering that despite the reflective tendency in the modern media to portray far-right violence as a problem of the uneducated working class, historically the social base of fascism has been the middle class. 
The BUF took on the trappings of a continental fascist paramilitary, complete with the black shots borrowed from the Nazis um, and the Italian groups, and increasingly using violent tactics. By the mid-1930s, it had started to alienate many of its supporters, as violence at their rallies increased and hostility towards Germany grew in Britain. In 1936, this came to a head. The BUF planned a march for October 4th, intending to send thousands of black-shirted men through the east end of London. This was an area populated with many groups that were on the Nazi shit list. A huge Jewish population. There were also lots of refugees and Irish people. On top of that, there was a working-class area in a hotbed of far-left politics. Essentially, this was a provocative act, almost certain to inspire violence. Although this was two years before Act, there had been a number of far-right anti-Semitic pogroms in mainland Europe and the UK preceding this. Concentration camps had been running since 1933, and refugees had begun leaving Nazi Germany. Closer to home, Mosley's black shirts had already been intimidating Jewish shop owners, beating people up and spraying graffiti. Basically, Jews, and to a lesser extent all leftists, had a very good reason to resist several thousand black shirts marching through their community. This exact situation had led to street violence in the past, and the writing was also on the wall, politically speaking. So, 100,000 residents of the area petitioned the Home Secretary to ban the march over justified fears of violence but he refused and sent about six or 7,000 police as an escort to ensure the march could go ahead. There are perhaps some ways you can justify this decision. You could argue that having the police there may have present, prevented black shirt violence. Home Secretary John Simon's argument was actually that the march must go ahead on the grounds of free speech, although to me that's a little bit rich, coming from a government which still had a censor's office and which routinely used the police to suppress leftist and national politics. Ultimately, the government chose to side with the Nazi paramilitary group over the justifiably terrified residents of the East End, sending mounted police officers to facilitate an anti-Semitic march that may well have turned into a pogrom. This is a decision which reeks of both ethnic and class prejudice, as well as rank cowardice from a government that was still pursuing a policy of appeasement towards continental fascist regimes. The residents of the East End um, decided to take things into their own hands to prevent the march. A range of groups were involved, bringing together Jewish, Irish and leftist organisations. Elements of the local Communist Party provided the greatest logistical leadership, although the British Communist Party in general was against this direct action and temporarily expelled many of the participants. The anti-fascists built barricades and threw stones, bottles and the contents of their chamber pots out of the windows at the police in the black shirts. 3,000 fascists protected by 6,000 police but faced with somewhere between 100 and 300,000 opponents. The police attempted to clear a path through Cable Street but they were unable to, with the British Union of Fascist Marchers being forced to give up and disperse. However, violence continued throughout the day, mainly between the police and anti-fascists. There were several hundred injuries on both sides with many of those arrested alleging violent treatment at the hands of the police. There were no fatalities. The Battle of Cable Street is a foundational moment in the development of anti-fascism and the history of the British left in general. It's easy to see why, as this quote from Professor Bill Fishman, a witness to the battle, shows. I was moved to tears to see bearded Jews and Irish Catholic dockers standing up to stop Mosley, and I shall never forget that as long as I live, how working class people could get together to oppose the evils of fascism. This is the ultimate example of class and intercommunal solidarity in the face of fascism. 
The fact that the BUF was so clearly on the wrong side of history helps. The failure of fascism in Britain is often attributed by those on the left in part to their humiliating defeat of the fascists at Cable Street. Black-shirted thugs and mounted police officers driven back by dock workers, Jewish teenagers and women throwing chamber pots out of their windows. It's an amazing, inspiring image. That said, there are some elements of this Cable Street incident which are kind of mythological, but they're worth looking at in more detail. And far from denigrating the importance or the potency of this event, I think that stripping back some of the easy mythology actually makes what happened even more impressive and even more illustrative of modern anti-fascism. Firstly, the Battle of Cable Street was no grand alliance between the British Jews and the British left. The boards of deputies of British Jews cautioned against resistance, or direct resistance, while the Labour Party continued to preach pacifism at home and appeasement abroad. The Communist Party was deeply split on the issue, so local communist branches did take a leadership role, but the central leadership, the central organising leadership was a little bit more reticent. So this was not a grand alliance between elites, but rather it was a spontaneous, grassroots response by local residents. Not only did local communities choose to come together and fight for each other, but they did so in the face of resistance from the elites who were supposed to represent them. I think this makes the events of that day even more inspiring, and it fits with the radically decentralised ethos which, which persists within the anti-fascist movement to this day. Another important thing to remember here is that the Battle of Cable Street was not really between the fascists and the anti-fascists, but between anti-fascists and the police. The idea of Mosley and his boys being beating is certainly a pleasing one, but the BUF members for the most part escaped unscathed. But again, this only underscores a key aspect of anti-fascist thinking. The state and the police can't protect you from fascism. In fact, not only are they not always your ally, sometimes they might even be your enemy. Finally, the idea that Cable Street is what led to the defeat of British fascism is another, admittedly, pleasing myth. The BUF had been declining in popularity for a while, and their membership actually increased after Cable Street. They maintained their capacity to commit violence, most significantly at the Mile End pogrom only one week after Cable Street. What really eliminated British fascism was the fact that the UK went to war with Nazi Germany. Mosley and his wife were locked up as potential security risks and the BUF was banned as a potential fifth column. While fascist and racist ideology persisted in the UK, there was no question the BUF continuing as an organised force, with the entire UK population mobilised in the fight against foreign fascism. So, Cable Street is a kind of Rosetta Stone for understanding modern anti-fascist street organising, both because of what happened and from the myths that sprung up around it. It represents a great victory for anti-fascism, although it was more symbolic than strategic. More tellingly, it fits with how Antifa protests work today. It was ideologically diverse and decentralised, less as a conscious attempt to pursue anarchist ideals, and more because the pacifism of elite political leaders necessitated grassroots cross-community action by local residents. It was direct action rather than electoral politics, although notably no one was killed. It was defensive in that it involved heading off an imminent threat from a paramilitary group. And crucially, the people who organised against fascists at the Battle of Cable Street had to act against the police and against the state, rather than by relying on them. These features aren't present in every example of anti-fascist protest or counter-protest, and as a movement there is no doubt that lofty ideals do not always play out neatly in practice. 
But this does fit with my experience of attending these kind of events. The focus is on action which is direct but not overly violent. It's based on driving dangerous extremist groups off the street and away from marginalised communities, but does not involve attacking political opponents where they live or in their place of work. Often, the larger anti-fascist protest means that the police simply prevent the planned far-right demo from taking place, forcing the right-wing group onto buses and moving them outside the area. Violence is minimal, but the tactics are often successful. This is pretty reflective of the way things tend to go in the UK, but there are exceptions. In other countries, things can get more chaotic, as was seen in the Charlottesville protests. Although, of course, the violence there wasn't springing purely or even primarily from the anti-fascist groups. So, I just want to finish up with a word on the permissibility of violence as an anti-fascist tactic. I think a personal commitment to pacifism is an admirable thing, and there are certainly good arguments to say that violence against political opponents should never be acceptable. I don't really want to discuss that here, and I think that, you know, it's a very interesting question, and everyone's entitled to their own opinion and beliefs. But what I would push back more strongly against is the idea that Antifa and the far right are the same, or that somehow Antifa are the real fascists. Firstly, the numbers don't add up. There have been no murders related to Antifa in the US, while there have been dozens of deaths each year related to white supremacist or far right domestic terrorism. Throwing a milkshake or even a punch is not the same as murdering people or committing terrorist acts. The level of violence and the forms of violence are completely different. There aren't good people on both sides, and there isn't really an equivalence. Secondly, the motivation for violence on each side is completely different. Anti-fascists target fascists because of what they do, namely promote hateful and inherently violent ideologies. To avoid being a target of anti-fascists, you would simply have to... You wouldn't even have to stop believing in whatever ideology you believed in. You would simply have to stop attending public far-right demonstrations and stop publicly espousing and promoting far-right politics. Far-right groups, on the other hand, almost exclusively target people based on immutable characteristics. It's possible to stop being a public fascist activist. It's impossible to stop being Jewish or Muslim or gay or black. Ultimately, while there are many complex arguments about free speech and the permissibility of violence, people should be able to tell the difference between someone who punches Richard Spencer at a protest and someone who shoots up a synagogue. And if you can't, then, you know... You might be an idiot.